this is a perfect time to to go ahead and, and introduce ourselves for this episode as well. I'm Jeff McCready. We have Trevin Clough. We have the Catalyst podcast. We're exploring the intersection of well-being and success. And today we are actually going to dig in a little bit to the value of community and the ways that it can help with our resilience, which is something that I'm finding almost across the board. I'm talking about with all my clients right now. And what we were starting on there as uh, the first subject here is there are some challenges to engaging in this community that we so desperately need. And we'll dig in a little bit to some research around the value of relationships and the quality therein and how it can help us be resilient. But we are, I think, it's really important for us to to place this conversation within the, the greater social narrative and the social context right now. There are some forces that are making it challenging for us to engage in community. I think that's what you were starting to talk about, Trevin. It all feels so delicate that I don't think there's really any honest conversation about those social factors. And, and the result seems to be that there's a lot of people who are disconnected. The, the thing we know that may have gotten lost in modernism is how much we're an interdependent species. Humans are in the new technology of nature where the power is with the group, not the individual. E.O. Wilson wrote a great book. Uh, I think it's called The Meaning of Life. And he described, I think, 20 species that he called eusocial, meaning the individuals die unless they have constant communal contact and connection. And, you know, like we don't have cool fangs. We don't move fast. Our senses suck. We are designed very much, you know, another group is like ants. And an ant is more like a blood cell in a body than it is an individual ant. And that's kind of eusociality. So, you know, his statement is that we're a eusocial species and don't realize it. You were starting off sharing some of the ways that we have developed kind of social habits and patterns for enforcing this social or communal thing. And, and you were mentioning, you know, the use of, of shame um, to encourage conformity or encourage a return to the group to enjoy those benefits of love and affection and support. And this is a subject that has actually come up a few times with some people I've chatted with is what is the difference between clean shame and dirty shame? Is there, is there a good shame? Because as you were saying, shame is a psychological equivalent of being stabbed. But somehow in our evolutionary or, or species journey to happiness and community, we're kind of in an emotional knife fight right now. It's very empowering to be able to control others through shame. And when you have a belief system, oh, let's go back 1500 years and just go to sort of, you know, religion mm. and the belief that we can go around the world. And if people don't believe like we believe and we can't shame them into doing so, then we should kill them. And a version of that seems to be happening right now all over the place. And, you know, even as we say that anybody who's watching this, their mind is going to point at a group of people that they disagree with and say, see, it's their fault. They're the ones doing it. And so then they're shaming each other about shaming. And it, it's it's just a tool that's wielded, not realizing that you're stabbing somebody. This is a very specific tool for a very specific thing. We're just freely 
walking around, flinging it everywhere over every little thing because it makes us feel powerful to have that over someone. And it is nice to find a, a lever for power in our individual moment, sure. But I'm, I, if it's all right, I'd, I'd like to ask you about resilience. What's your interest in your, you've used that word a couple of times. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Know? Well, I guess thinking thinking through this this subject matter, you know, we're we're talking about the challenges of of having community and and i think that the the heart of this is resilience is not only a survival tool it's one of the few survival tools that also is a tool to help us thrive you know maslow's hierarchy or or whatever that might be but as far as self actualization goes our ability to overcome negative feelings and identify a new positive direction to go is the tool that allows us to find joy and happiness in our lives. So this may be one of those unique times when we have an evolutionary tool that also carries us the distance going forward. And the value that we get out of community, out of not being held back by fear of shame, by not wielding shame in a dangerous way, by pushing people away, that incredible value that we get from community is what helps us become resilient. It's what helps us I think that there's a, a study that we'll probably both touch on here, but the longest um, study of individuals has been conducted, I think, by the by Harvard over the last, I think, almost 80 years, starting in 1936. They started uh, recording incredible vast amount of information across 720-some men, uh, many from Harvard, some from inner city Boston. They tracked them throughout their lives. There's only 20 or 30 left in their 80s and 90s now. But what they have found about the value of community from this study, the longest study that's ever been done like this, is that it keeps us from having chronic disease. It keeps us from becoming depressed. It, it Community helps us live longer. It helps us live fuller lives. The depth and quality of our relationships directly translate into these vital data points. And so the question is, is if resilience is so important, to finding joy, why are we overlooking the number one source of resilience, which is community? And that is my big, my big philosophy and my big theory here that I, I am so excited about is what about all those times when we're just looking at our phone after work or having an extra glass of wine? If we ask ourselves, am I helping my future self or am I hurting my future self? I think we always know it. And so the question is, how can we truly prioritize community to become more resilient? Yeah. So that, that study is wrapped up in that book, Oh, The Good Life. Mm -hmm. By Waldinger. So it's cool because they started with a group of men and then they had an endowment that was crazy. Through all that time, they followed their family. They followed their kids. They followed everybody. And they had enough funding that they could use every single psychological tool that was evolving and all the psychological tools that were coming along as they came along and applied them to all these people. So now we've got thousands of people that they're following with the very simple goal of let's understand well-being. In the end, very, very simply, they, they do a nice job of succinctly saying success isn't individual. The closer you are, to the more people with the more depth, the better you are in every category of life, period. The more connections we have with the more depth, the better we live, the longer we live, every way we know how to measure well-being. In fact, they say it strongly that you're better off having deep connections that are secure and, and supportive and be a smoker and be overweight and have diabetes and health problems. You're better off having people in your life and having all those other things. And that's astounding. 
Yeah, so it goes back to that we're an interdependent species. And, you know, my field is as guilty as anything about worshiping the individual. We're, we're in a cultural belief system that happiness is in the individual when we know very, very well that no, happiness is in being the kind of person that gets along well with other people. And so if you throw out the word success, everybody's going to stand there and make individual goals. It's going to be about the individual, you know? So, you know, I hope we're at a place where we're pivoting and understanding that, no, it's actually being a good individual so that you can be a healthy part of a family and a group and a friendship and a culture. That's where the true success is. All that individual stuff, yeah, that's wonderful for me, but if it's not supporting me doing this, I'm going to be a stressed out, lonely mess. This touches on some of the stuff we talked about in the goals episode last time. And it, in the not to go too far into that, but the, the point that I'm thinking of is sometimes a bad goal is a goal that I optimizes for the wrong KPI, a key performance indicator, it, you know, the, the, the wrong number, the wrong analytic, wrong gotcha. figure. And something like 80% of young people have a stated goal of becoming wealthy in their life. 50% of young people have a stated goal of wanting to become famous. And we also have read that money only makes us so much more happy, happy up to a point at which the returns are not really there. Add another million dollars a year, it's not necessarily going to make you twice as happy. So the question is, why when we get enough, when we start to have enough to pay our bills and to take some vacations, we haven't been reorienting our goal, our our objective KPI to what are the quality and depth of my relationships? It's yeah. still around how much money can I take with me? I, I love that idea. Time is the currency. And I think I would say yes and connection is the currency. If I can, I'd like to ask, maybe build a bridge in my mind resiliency and and community and in community i think the word connection also fits but they're interchangeable what's the bridge between resilience and connection or community i think the bridge has to do with the way we process the experiences we have every day some people would call them trauma or micro trauma or just experience could be good or bad but even a lot of good things is still a lot to manage like if we're holding you know, one ball or two balls, that's fine. But if I'm holding 25 balls, even if they're small, it's too much. So we have intense lives. We are in a capitalist world. And we come home at the end of the day, or if you work from home, you pivot your chair and move to the other room, <laughs> smaller or a bigger screen, maybe. With your phone and your glass of wine. <laughs> yeah, put your phone in your glass of wine and throw it out the window. <clears throat> and community is the thing that at the beginning or middle or whenever it might be of the day, that allows us to effectively process the intensity of our lives and to avoid the situation where we become chronically stressed, chronically inflamed, chronically depressed, chronically having digestion and sleeping issues. Because there are some people who do not have anyone to chat, process, blow off steam or anything like that. And that's the big risk. This is the, this is the bridge is that community allows us to, in a natural way, manage the difficulties that we experience every day and reorient our perspective towards what's crucial, what really matters, what is crucial in our lives for happiness. And it turns out that community, that ability to stay out of chronic stress actually increases our lifespan. I saw a piece of data this week, young men between the age of 18 and 29, 63% say they are not in a relationship 
and aren't interested in one. And that's up from 51% just three years ago. So this direction towards community is painful. I don't, and so I, I guess I wanted to tie that together and see if I'm understanding. I think I'm learning something here. So the word, the word resilience is I'm stable enough to participate in a healthy way in a community. And a community being a group of people with a common interest and shared trust. And family and mm-hmm. partnership, which is what that data was sort of aiming at. Kind of going back, I think that the stabbing of shame causes people to raise their defenses. It hurts. We're going to avoid anything that looks like that. And when people give themselves permission to should and shame, I've decided what you should or should not do. And you should feel bad about it. And I've decided that. When that happens to people, I think they become more isolated. And I think I'm asking a question here. So if if people have been shamed and shoulded and they isolate, then they don't have enough resilience to be in culture. They're going to be completely self-protective and they're not going to be strong enough to tolerate any of the ins and outs and necessary things that are, I mean, ultimately when I think about it, I'm talking about getting along. In a pleasant and friendly way. Yeah, I don't know. So I, I think that's my question. I'm trying to get a bridge in my mind. And so the resilience to connections, that idea that if people are free to shame, people are going to be self-protective. They're not going to have resilience. And so any interactions with people, which we need to be happy because we're an independent species, are going to not be there. And so our suicide rates are going to go up. Our loneliness is going to go up. Our isolation is going to go up. Our mental health issues on all levels are going to go up. We're going to see marriage rates going down dramatically. We're going to see birth rates going down dramatically. We're going to see people reporting friendships going down dramatically, which is what all the data is pointing to. I think we are seeing these data points. It seems like we're touching a subject around currently in our society, there is a lot of change and a lot of opinions being shared in a very direct way. Very important ones. I don't think we want to go back to society 100 years ago. And the change is also tearing our social fabric apart. We need it. And it's harming us on an individual level. So there's individual loneliness that's coming about from the shame. And there are some downsides, but there are many upsides also to the cultural changes that we are experiencing this decade. Yeah. So if we kind of flip this over and I like asking this to students and I like asking this to clients and I think it's a great question to ask. And so when people are getting along in a modern world with the changes that we're going through and where we're going in terms of, you know, what does equality look like and things like that? Yeah. What does it look like when we're doing well and we're having success socially, relationally? So what are, what do you think, if you were to sit back and you were to watch people, what do you think the markers would be that would let you know that people are connected and doing well? Great question. And I think it ties in with resilience as well, because the time to lean into these activities so that we can cultivate exactly the situation you're asking about is when we think we're starting to get a little tired or a little chafed or a, having a little bit, it's the yellow flag. It's not the red flag emergency. It's too late then. That becomes an acute situation. And so a question then is, how can we incorporate in our day-to-day lives on a regular basis, these elements of community and resilience-oriented self-care so that it does actually start to look like, Trevin, what you're asking about, you know, what what, what does it look like when, when we're feeling like we're in good community? I think the first thing is being able to manage this, uh, the, the, the thorniest element of what we've talked about, you know, uh, the shame element and bringing people together to a place where we're 
exploring ideas again, rather than sharing what we think of someone else. The perspective that we have something to learn rather than the perspective that we have something to tell, in my experience, is one of the most powerful communication tools that I have ever found. And it has been the bedrock of most of the friends that I've ever made. Yeah. So when I look at the markers, and I want to go back to the shame thing for a second, but when I look at the... we. I think we kind of know this from sociology and psychology and all the things that we've studied. People who live as if they want other people's lives to be great. That's my definition of love. Behaving as if you want somebody's life to be great. And that requires empathy. The ability to say, hey, my behavior did this. Oh, you felt that way as a result. Damn. You know, you talked about clean and dirty shame. I think clean shame is when we shame ourselves. And that's me just checking myself and going, oh, I hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. I'm sorry. The next layer of that is that requires the capacity for self-evaluation, which I think is interpreted by culture as a weakness. No, it's actually, I was an asshole there. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to not be an asshole. You know, Volunteering self-fault becomes a really critical part of participating in this community. Yeah. Common interests, joy, laughter. We, we know the markers of people who are doing well, good sex, <laughs> right? Sure. We, we know the it, friendship being there, the sense that I'm going to be at my worst right now and I can pick up the phone and I can call this person. They're going to care about me enough that they're going to tolerate me at my worst. And, they're, and we do that for each other. We know we have that. And I like that you touched on that because that's my really short answer to your question is, do we have people we can call if we need to? How do we know we're in community? Do I have one? And is it okay to be me? Am I going to get shamed? You know, if we go back to the shame thing, I, this has been a curiosity of mine when I, when, when I look at like what happens in the brain in an fMRI when somebody's shamed, it's going to hurt. So going back to resilience, I don't think we can be resilient to shame. We're not designed for that. It's too deep. It's too much of a human component weapon, and it should be used very, very sparingly. There's a great book. I forget the author. It's called Is Shame Necessary? And she walks through that. And it's kind of her thesis is we just pulled shame, which is a very specific tool for a very specific thing, and just made it broad throughout culture. And everybody's using it, and they're using it too much. I, I wonder if shame isn't too deep and too harmful. I don't think there's a resilience to it. Well, I I like how you discern between the two kinds. And I'm wondering if maybe clean shame is the core of being a person who is capable of community and dirty shame is the core of someone who kills community or a behavior trait that may be limiting community without being so, you know, explicit. Yeah. Growth comes through welcoming change through the connection, not mandating change through psychological harm. And so, yeah, I think what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to shame the shamers. This is getting meta. (laughs) Because (laughs) this change comes from our desire to be aware when we're shaming and to use that tool very, very sparingly, because I don't think there's a resilience to it. It's going to hurt. Mm -hmm. Like stabbing someone with a knife and go, why are you bleeding? Oh, that's because you're weak. No, I got stabbed. (laughs) Bleeding. I have skin. That's right. Brings up the question of how then can we move forward and cultivate our resilience? which maybe we can't be resilient over shame, but the nature of resilience is that we experience something difficult and we get over it. How much of an ability do we have to get over it, reorient our perspective and those kinds of things? Because someone's going to get canceled later today and tomorrow and from here on. 
all the time. And those people will have to recover just the same as we have to recover from an intense meeting or a disagreement at work or a car accident. Yeah, that's a funny thing. So I, I was playful with words there, but I think it invites an interesting question of we can't shame shamers into not shaming. Likely not. It's uh, it's very it's cyclical. And and so you know, trying to demonstrate something different, change usually comes in a loving way through an invitation. The invitation is maybe we should be aware when we're harming people because shame is harm. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should know that we either get to have some power, which we get through shame, or we can take a more complicated and connected way of helping people think about their behavior. And we have a couple of different uh, theaters here for this community orientation. One is the individual to public at large, strangers, people we don't know very well. And then there is the individual's relationship to their intimate community. Mm -hmm. The intimate community generally is the place where we receive a lot of the, the nourishment for our resilience. And I think that many times, not always, but many times the the judgment, the otherness, the dirty shame, as we've been calling it here, will be introduced from that larger community, individual to the to the larger public. And so I guess if if that is the case, not to say that friends don't hurt each other or make assessments or things like that, or moms or whoever that may be, but what habits can we develop to make sure that we are cultivating meaning and depth in the relationships that we do have, that we depend on so much to help us kind of go over the the chop, um, to use a boating metaphor in life. And and it, I really do think it is as simple as just reaching out, making a phone call, sending that message. Hey, it's been a long time since I've talked to you. I'd like to connect and just seeing what you get back. It is the kind of time where plant one seed and you may get a ton back, but it is literally our lives that we're nurturing by reaching out to our friends and family and work colleagues, even by saying hello to a stranger on the street. It helps us become more joyful, more happy and more connected, more resilient. Yeah, as you're talking there, so see, something came together. I think resilience is being strong enough to be vulnerable and being strong enough to show up with love. When we're doing well, that's what we're doing. So if I can, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. I think you're socially, community connected, really, really successful. What are you doing well? How do you do that? What are you doing right? Great question. I love that. Thanks for the assessment. I don't feel any dirty shame at this time. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, I love to be the person that restarts the text chain that sends someone I haven't spoken to in six months or a year, three or four or five different pictures from my cell phone, even if I have no text to them or something like that. Just that moment of just, hey, what's going on? What's going on? And 98% of the time, people respond and they're really excited about it. Sometimes, you know, it's been too long. They don't want to answer, you know, so what? We're just going to have to survive that. But I think that fear keeps a lot of us from doing that outreach in the first place. So yeah, you outreach. Yes, absolutely. And Initiating proactive outreach, that kind of thing. But I think it's managing that emotional voice that tells us not to do it because we're too tired or we don't want to answer all the replies or they might not like me anymore or we didn't really have that much in common or they probably think I'm hitting on them or, you know, any of these other concerns that may come up that keep us from actually taking advantage of these even casual relationships that actually still are shown to really help us as well, in addition to the deeply intimate ones. Okay. Yeah. And... I think when they do get a text from Jeff, everybody looks forward to it. What are you doing right there that people look forward to contacting you? 
Well, I think the nature of, of good socializing is fun. You know, certain, certainly we're going to reach out to to manage some problems or deal with issues with, you know, close friends or something like that. But I love to get a silly or fun or encouraging or deprecating message from someone that leaves space for me to then kind of, you know, engage in a repartee or something like that. Um, just telling someone I got a promotion or I made a big achievement or something falls a little flat. We can't if we can't carry it with us in the long run, it might not be the thing that pulls at our heartstrings enough to really compel that emotional connection. So, yeah, I don't I have a fascination with fun. I know it's not very fun to think about fun philosophically or whatever, but, I, you know, in the weird sort of algorithm of things, I know life loves novelty. Mm-hmm. Laughter fixes everything. It really like fixes everything. It's like sex. It fixes everything. And and. I think that's kind of built into the universe and life, even at a very scientific level. I think fun wins. I think fun wins everything. And and it's funny because we go back to this. And I think if somebody is in a state where they're trying to protect themselves from shame, they're not risking anything. There's no new novelty. You right. can't have any fun when everybody's judging each other. Totally limited. Or even aware that people might judge. Fun is somewhere in the rest and digest side rather than the fight or flight side. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think fun wins. I'm in agreement. And you're very fun. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I describe you as someone who's capable of going as deep as you need to, but always tugging towards the fun and funny. (laughs) I love it. I will try and live up to it. This has been awesome. This has been a, a great conversation. I I almost have more questions now than when we started. We may want to come back and and touch some of these subjects again here. But thank you so much for spending the time here, Trevin, checking out shame, community, resilience. We're talking about the path to being joyful in life while still pursuing our success. I'd love to have a conversation just exploring what fun is. It's interesting because I've done research on it and there's a couple books that are kind of self-helpish, superficial, but it's I, I haven't found it. It's not a topic that's been really thought about and digested or or discussed, explored. So that would be fun to explore fun with you. Next up on the catalyst, fun.